So we are going through our series in the book of Hebrews, and we're calling it A Crisis of Faith. We all go through crisis, and we're using a capital K for crisis because it's the Greek term, which means separation. Anytime we experience separation from God, it feels like a crisis of faith. Now, we always want to understand the context when we come to the Word of God, and the context is this. This is a sermon written to the church in Rome, many of whom were of Jewish ancestry, who are coming out of the Jewish faith and becoming Christians. And so, that's why the book is called Hebrews, another term for Jewish. And it's written to them because they are in a crisis of faith. They, too are struggling with the question, is it worth it to follow this Jesus of Nazareth? So if you'd pray with me, we'll ask God to be with us as we look at today's message from Hebrews. Father, we thank You that we get to come and gather in this place. We get to come as a community to consider together Your truth, Your Word, Your goodness, Your glory. We thank You for this opportunity. We know there's lots of other places that we could be right now, other things that we could be doing. I just want uh, to thank you for putting it on the hearts of these here to come and to worship you. There's no greater privilege on earth than to worship the King of glory. You are truly beautiful, and we thank you for allowing us to come into your presence. Be with us tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Thank you for being here, by the way. Uh, Thank you. Enough said. Have you ever been to a grocery store? Good. (laughs) Have you ever had the intense feeling when you come to the checkout aisle and you've picked the wrong aisle and your aisle is moving way too slow and you're like, what is going on? Have you ever been to a BECU ATM? They do not have actual physical branches where you can go and talk to a teller. You have to go to an ATM. Have you ever stood in line on a Friday? I have. Why do we have drive-throughs? Why do we have Amazon two-hour delivery? The reason for all of this, all of this angst, all of these quick delivery systems is because we are a part of the least patient generation in history the least patient generation in history. However, last year, U.S. drivers wasted nearly 7 billion hours in traffic. That's 42 hours per rush hour commuter sitting in traffic when they didn't have to. Why didn't they have to? Because they could have moved to a rural situation where there is no traffic. But yet, as part of the least patient generation in history, More and more people are flocking to cities. Why in the world would they do that? Why would they choose to put themselves in a situation where much time is wasted, where being impatient doesn't work very well? Why do people continue to choose to move to the city? Why have you choose to move to the city? Here's why I think. 
Because no matter the hassle, no matter the anxiety, no matter the inconvenience or the chaos or the craziness of the congestion of the city, we realize that there's something on the other side of the traffic that is so much greater than the traffic. There's something on the other side of all the frustration that's greater that we cannot get, that's an irreplaceable good that only happens in the city where the traffic exists. You ever thought of that? We complain about the traffic, yet we choose to live in it. Now, that being said, every time I sit in traffic, the same thing happens to me. My onions begin to boil, and I think thoughts that I later need to ask forgiveness for. I mean, the things that go through my head, you don't want to know. I'm probably alone in this. I'm sure you've never thought something about a Prius driver. (laughs) Sorry if you drive. Not everyone, just the vast majority. (laughs) You're not a bicycle. (laughs) You don't get to just do whatever you want. You've got to act like a car, okay? All right. So my onions boil. I think thoughts I need forgiveness from. And then I always do one other thing. I always begin to scheme other ways around the traffic. I think I'm somehow smarter than the traffic, that I'm the enlightened one, that I can find a path through the traffic that no one's ever thought of. And every time I go on that little path, it always ends up taking me longer. But yet, I keep doing it. I know that any time I get off the freeway and I try to go back streets, I always end up costing myself more time. So today, what we're going to be talking about are storms and ships and anchors, and we'll see in the text today, the author of Hebrews calls Jesus, or the hope in Jesus, the steadfast anchor for our soul. And what do anchors do? The job of the anchor is to keep you fixed to the seabed, no matter the condition of the sea. It connects you to the immovable object, which is the solid ground beneath the shifting tides above. And the rougher the weather gets, the more important the anchor becomes to the safety and the stability of the ship and its crew. Now here's the weird thing. When storms hit me, when the storms of life push in on me, I tend to do two things. As I mentioned above in the traffic, I tend to either flee from the problem Altogether, try to outrun the storm, or I try to cleverly outmaneuver the storm, find a way around the storm, try to sneak by the full force of the winds. And very seldom do I do what this passage will teach us to do, which is find my anchor, drag it to the side of the ship, lift it up, and throw the anchor over the side. And just wait, right where I am. Wait for the storm to blow past me. Why don't I do this last option? I think it's because I've convinced myself that the anchor will not hold. And I've convinced myself that I have a better chance of survival if I trust myself, if I trust my speed to flee, or I trust my cunning to avoid And so I don't throw an anchor. 
What's at the root of this human tendency to either flee the problem or outmaneuver? And we see it in the traffic analogy. The reason why when I'm stuck in traffic, I always want to find a way is because it seems to me I prefer to at least be moving rather than standing still. Because movement makes me feel like I'm making progress. Even if I'm not. It makes me feel like I'm in control even when I'm not. Because the thing is, when I try to outrun the storm, when I try to outmaneuver the storm, if it's a big enough storm, there is no way that I can outrun it. And it will just keep sweeping me along. And the storm will go, and I will go, and I'll never actually get out of the storm. And if I try to outmaneuver it, if I go to the west, it's too wide. I can't get around it. I'm still stuck, but yet I haven't thrown the anchor. And so it never passes me by, and I sit in the storm forever. We need to throw the anchor. So if you're there with me, Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 13. Actually, before we get to 13, I need to set up the context here. So look at starting in verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. So Joe talked about last week, we need to grow strong in our faith, we need to build up the muscle, we need to stop drinking just milk, but we need solid food and we need to train because there's a place God's trying to take us and it's going to take faith and it's going to take patience in order to inherit those promises. So we must imitate. But who do we imitate? Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, here's the example, Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he, that's God, swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Okay, let me explain this. We need to understand who Abraham was and what he's talking about here. What is this patience that he's talking about? Now, Abraham is really the father of the nation of Israel, the people group that God built through Abraham to bless the whole world. And so you come, and in Genesis 12, the 12th chapter of the Bible, uh, Abraham is introduced. And God comes to Abraham, and and he gives him some marching orders. Now, this is crazy because Abraham did not know this God before He came and spoke to him. But when an all-powerful God speaks to you, you tend to listen. So Abraham, in faith, went. God said, go. Where do I go, Abraham said? That way. Do I have a name of a city? No, you just need to go west. And so he went. And so he went. And part of this promise in Genesis 12 was to go, and I will make you into a great nation. A great nation. Well, If you've ever started a family, you know in order to get to the next generation, you have to have a kid. Now here's the problem. Year after year after year, no kid. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, no kid. But yet, God, didn't you promise me that you'd make a great nation? Don't I have to have a kid in order to make myself and my family into a great nation? Well, surely, God knows that. 
But again and again, year after year, no children, and specifically no son to carry on the name. God keeps reminding, he keeps reassuring Abraham of this covenant that he's made. Trust me, keep having faith, be patient, I will give you a son. And again and again you see as you go through Genesis, he keeps promising the same thing. But of course, Abraham, what's going on here? Am I doing something wrong? And eventually, I mean we're talking decades into unfulfilled promises, Abraham's wife comes up with a plan, Sarah. And she does the same thing that we all do. After waiting and waiting patiently for God to fulfill what we believe to be his promises, we start to wonder, maybe I need to help him out a little bit. And so what Sarah does is he go, she goes and she takes her maidservant, Hagar, and brings uh, her to Abraham and said, Abraham, sleep with uh, my servant. She can bear us a child. Then God's promises will be fulfilled. She's contingency planning. She's trying to go around the storm. Now this is not after a month, two months. This is after decades of waiting. And Hagar ends up having a son, Ishmael. And Sarah says to Abraham, uh, why can't we just make Ishmael the son? And so Abraham brings that to God. Why can't we just get started this way? And God says, no. I will give you a son through your wife, Sarah. Now, 13 more years go by. Abraham is now 99 years old, and Sarah is 90 years old. Still no son. And again, God appears to Abraham and reasserts his covenant. And this time, Abraham hears and he laughs saying, shall Sarah give birth when she's 90 years old? So some, uh, some scholars and, and preachers, you may have heard this text, they say, well, you know, people lived longer back then. It's clear from the narrative that this was hilarious to think that Sarah could bear a child naturally. That's the whole point. She's 90 years old. He's laughing. And in the very next chapter, God reasserts the covenant, the promise of a family and uh, a nation as many as the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. And so, again, he asserts, and this time Sarah overhears, and she begins to laugh. And it's this really funny uh, scene because she's outside the tent when Abraham is hearing from the Lord, and she hears that, you know, she's 90, uh, 91 years old at this time, and she begins to laugh. And then it says that God confronts her and says... Are you laughing? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And Sarah uh, kind of, uh, you know, she gets very cowardly and she says, no, 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 I didn't laugh. And God says, no, you did laugh. Trying to out uh, (laughs) trick the Lord. Not ever a good idea. And so we have this scene. 25 years of patiently waiting for the promises of God. Yes, it was not always perfect, but they were waiting. And sure enough, one year later, after this final promise, after Sarah laughed at God, Abraham's 100 years old, and Sarah gets pregnant and has a son. 
and they name him Isaac. 25 years waiting for this promise that God had given them of a son. 25 years. It's hard to wrap your head around the patience that that would take. Now here's the craziest part of the story. They finally have the sun. The storm is over. They've made it through. There's joy. There's celebration. The biggest barbecue that you've ever seen right here in Genesis. And they celebrate. And then sometime later, the Lord returns uh, to Abraham and says, you know what I want you to do now? I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to take him up on the mountain. I want to prepare an altar. And I want you to kill your son and give me a burnt offering. What? What? Why would God do this? Why? After all the waiting, all the patience, all the trusting, all the faith, why, Lord? And I think here's why God did this. Abraham was very important to God. Very important to his plan. And he needed one more test for what? To test whether Abraham loved God more or he loved the fulfilled promises of God. Man, I was so convicted of this as I studied and prepared this week. Do I love God more? Do I fear God more? Or do I love his fulfilled promises? What do I love more? So Abraham took his son Isaac up into the mountains and he prepared the altar of stones and he bound up his son and he placed him on the wood and he took out his knife and he's about to slaughter his son because he loves and fears the Lord more than anything. And an angel of the Lord cries out, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on that boy. For I know that you fear and you love God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up, and behold, he saw in the thicket, right near the altar, a ram caught up. God had given him a substitute to step into the place of his son, and Isaac was spared. If you're like me and you struggle to know how to patiently wait, what do we do? Imitate Abraham. Look to Abraham, who faithfully and patiently waited on the Lord again and again. Now, he was not perfect by no means. If you read the narrative, he screws up. But he is for us someone to imitate. God tested his patience, and Abraham passed. Now, why was, he, why was he able? Why was he able to trust and wait patiently? Because he believed the oath that God made to him. So look now at 6.16 and read with me. For people swear, and that's the same word there uh, for oath, people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. God has made to us an oath. And it goes something like this. Jesus is your anchor. I've given him to you. I swear to you he is capable to hold up in the biggest of storms. That's the oath God has made to us. Now here's the problem. We don't understand oath in our society. We don't understand it. The idea is a little bit beyond us because we are breaking promises all the time. We get married, we break the promise. We say, I'll pay you back, no problem. We never pay people back. Now this is not what an oath is. An oath is something so deeply rooted in the essence of a person that to break an oath is to really crush yourself. And so we've got to recapture this idea of what an oath is so that we can understand why we can trust this oath of God that Jesus is our anchor. So to understand that, I want to talk about the four uh, sort of points of an oath that make an oath either valuable or invaluable. Four, four points here. First, by whom is the oath maker swearing? By whom is the oath maker swearing? Two, uh, what is the character of the oath maker? Three, what is the collateral, oh, excuse me, three, how long does the oath last? And four, what is the collateral that holds that oath in place? And we're going to see that in this text, all four of those conditions are answered, and so we can have great hope in the oath of God. So look first at 6.13. 6.13, here's the first condition. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. What's going on here? When you would make an oath, you would swear by something. We still do it to this day. You probably heard something like, I swear by my mother's grave. I swear by my mother's grave. What does that mean? It means that if I break my oath, shame on my mother. If you love your mother like I love my mother, that's a big deal. In the olden days, in antiquity, you'd often hear people swearing by their children. I swear by my children's lives, dot, dot, dot. This is an intense oath because if you were to break your oath, what you're basically saying is you can now kill my children if I break this oath. You see the intensity of an oath? It's lost on us. We don't do this anymore. We say things, but we don't really mean it. So this is the idea. You always swear on something greater than yourself, right? And so my mother's grave or my children, those are things more valuable to me, greater than myself even, so I swear on them in order to secure the oath. Now, here's the problem. There is nothing greater than God himself. And so it says he had nothing greater to swear by, so he swore by himself. You say, well, that's a convenient way out. No, basically what God is saying is I swear by myself. If I do not keep my oath, I am dethroned as the God of the universe. So this is intense 
swearing by himself. This is actually why God cannot lie. So turn to 6, 17. It says this. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, here it is, in which it is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to lie. This is the second condition that makes a good oath. The character of the oath maker. God himself cannot lie. You say, well, is that a limitation of God? Is he therefore a limited God? You may have heard the old adage, can God create a rock too heavy for him to pick up? No, that's ludicrous. It's a, it doesn't equate. It doesn't follow. It's stupid. What's the word I'm looking for, Jesse? It's a par- it, no, it's, it's, it's a paradox. It's the worst. God cannot lie because in himself is truth. God is not removed from virtue. God is virtue, and so he himself cannot lie. This is why we can trust his oath. He literally cannot lie. It is against his very nature. He can't act against his nature for the same reason that he swears upon himself because it's literally impossible for him to break an oath. So that's another good reason. Reason number three. We see in the chapter that follows, chapter seven, this whole long thing about Jesus as the greater high priest, Melchizedek. We talked about that two weeks, but turn to chapter seven and look with me at verse 20. Look look with me at verse 20. It says this. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests, Jesus is our great high priest, were made such without an oath. But this one, Jesus, was made, uh, made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, this is God, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Here's basically what's happening. We talked about this two weeks ago. Jesus becomes our great high priest. He connects us to God. He stands in our place, experiencing what we've experienced. He's also stood in God's place because he is God. And he connects us to God. But he's only standing there because God appointed him, made him the priest. And he's not a priest for a time period, for a few years, for a term. He's a priest forever. And he was put there by an oath. And God has sworn to make him that oath. He's a priest forever. So what makes an oath strong? An oath that has no expiration date. The oath that Jesus is our anchor, that he is steadfast, that he holds us in place, that is a forever oath. And so we can trust it. So basically the author of Hebrews is saying this. He's a better anchor because God has made him that better anchor. He's declared that he's the anchor. He seals with the promise of an oath from a God who cannot lie, from a God who swears on himself because there's nothing greater than him. We can trust it. But there's one more reason, reason four. Look at six, back to chapter six, 19 to 20. Six, 19 says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. 
Here's the deal. It's not just that God cannot lie, that he swears on himself because there's nothing greater and so he can't break that oath. It's not just that God has declared Jesus the priest forever. It's this. Our hope, because Jesus is not an abstract idea, an abstract commodity, but a real living man who walked the earth, Jesus the God-man, we have hope in a person. We have hope in a person, the person Jesus. Think about a great football team or think about a great coach. It doesn't matter how much a great football coach can instill hope in his team if his players suck. It doesn't matter how much a hope can rally the troops or have a great scheme if his players are terrible. Yeah, maybe they'll win one or two games by a fluke, a lucky play here or there, some bad officiating. But certainly when the Alabama Crimson Tide, Roll Tide, when they come into town, it doesn't matter how much hope that coach can stir up in his players, they're going to lose because they suck. A good feeling of hope doesn't overcome the biggest storms. A good feeling of hope doesn't overcome the toughest opponent. The only thing that overcomes is great players because great players bring tangible hope. Our hope is our anchor and our hope is in the tangible, risen Jesus. He's the greatest of players. He's beat every opponent. He's even beaten death itself. Death itself could not overcome. Death is much better than the Alabama Crimson Tide. And Jesus has overcome them. He's still alive. He's still living. And that's why we have hope. It's a tangible hope rooted in a real person. It's not an abstract idea. It's really in Jesus, our hope, because he's our forerunner. He's gone into the toughest battle, into the toughest storm, and he's come out the other side to the calm. He's beat death and sin, and the wrath of God has been poured out on him, and he's come out victorious on the other side of the grave. And he walked right out, and he said, put your hope in me, not because I preached a good sermon, but because I beat death. That's why we put our hope in Jesus. He's already experienced the calm that we long for. It's in him alone that God makes the down payment for this oath. This is why we trust in him. Now, Two giant elephants in the room. Two giant elephants in the room. You say, okay, Jesus is the anchor in any storm. Great. Two elephants in the room, and they're this. One, why is there not some other way around the storm? And two, why does God even allow storms at all? I'm going to try to tackle these very quickly. Why can't we escape the storm in some other way? Well, I mentioned that our tendency is when the storm comes to try to find alternative paths. We try to do that all the time. We attempt to outrun the storm or outmaneuver the storm, but we can't escape, can we? Well, maybe we can sometimes. Maybe in smaller storms, there is another way around. Perhaps we can outrun this storm. But the question is, is there a type of storm that is coming that is too big too wide to outrun or, or escape. Is there any storm like that? Because if that storm exists, then no matter how much money you have or how much luck you have or how much cunning you have, 
You won't be able to escape. Is there a storm like that? Yes, there is. There's at least one storm like that in everybody's life. It's the storm we call death. And nobody's outrunning it. Nobody's outmaneuvering it. It's coming sooner or later for everybody that we know, and it's coming for us. That's a storm that you can't get around no matter how much money you have. No matter how nice your boat is. Why is it this way? Why is it this way, Dave? Well, look at this. When I say, why is it this way? Why is there only one way through that storm? Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly that the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable character of His purpose, the unchangeable character of His purpose. What is He saying there? The unchangeable character of His purpose is this. There has always only been one way through this storm we call death. It must be this way because it's always been this way. This has always been the plan of God. The unchangeable plan of God has always been that through Jesus Christ, His Son, our anchor, we can not go around, not flee, but go right through and withstand the storm when it comes. That's always been God's plan. It's unchangeable. It's eternal. From the foundation of the universe, it was always redemption through the Son, through the cross and the resurrection. It's always been that way. And we hear it and we say, why? And the reason that we say why is because we live in a culture where we think there's got to be something better. There's got to be a better way. This I call the Yelp world. We review everything. We rank everything. We think we can always come up with a better way. We think we are so smart and our opinions are so good. We stand on a beach in Maui and uh, we post online, "Eh, this is really only the fourth best beach on Maui. And it's like, what are we doing? Why are we ranking the most beautiful beaches in the world. Why do we do that? Why can't we just enjoy the beach and say, this is an amazing beach? We, there's something wrong with us. We have to put everything into a ranking, everything into a list, and we have to have an opinion about everything instead of just saying, wow, I can't believe this exists. We do everything we can to think of a better way to think of a better church that we could dream up in ahead, a better way that that movie could have ended, instead of just stopping. Just stopping. Just stop. Just stop. Stop complaining. Stop ranking. Stop providing other ways. Stop saying, I think I could think of a better way to bring humanity out of sin and into the fullness of God. Stop. And start celebrating that there is even a way. The sooner we stop, the sooner we stop trying to be God and outthink God and do His job for Him and think of a better way that He could have done it or He must have done it this way, and we just start accepting what He's already done, what He's already put in place, what He's already told us, then we can finally start being of value to our world, being of value to our neighbors, to those that we love, because we can stop using all of our energy to try to be God, and we can just start living in the world He's created. And this is the world He's created. There's a storm coming for us all, 
a storm called death, and there's one way through it. It's through the anchor of Jesus Christ, and we have to throw it over to the side of the boat, and we have to wait out the storm no matter how long that takes, but he's coming again because he's promised it, and he's proved it in the resurrection that there is calm after the storm. There is life after death. This is the way. Stop rethinking for God. He doesn't need our help. He needs us to just thank him, celebrate what he's done, speak of his glory. That's the first elephant. The second elephant is this. The second elephant is this. Well, why does God even allow this storm or any storm to come at all? Well, here, let me tell you what the reason why he's not allowing storms. God does not allow storms in order to test whether his son Jesus, the anchor, is strong enough to withstand storms. Does that make sense? He doesn't give us storms to see. I wonder if Jesus will make it on this one. Let's see if he can handle this one. That's not why he gives us storm. God knows that Jesus is enough. God knows that he can handle any storm. God allows storms so that we might see that Jesus is strong enough. See what I'm saying? He knows he's strong enough, but he knows that we don't know that he's strong enough. And so he allows storms in our life so that we might recognize that Jesus is the anchor. Does that make sense? We would not need as many storms as we do if we understood and took God's word at face value. But God uses storms to prove that Jesus is enough. So, really, storms allow us to recognize Jesus for who he is and what he is and what he can do that Jesus is really our greatest good. So God allows storms for our good. You might need to wrestle with that one. Don't stop considering that truth. Would I know that Jesus is enough if I, did ne- if I never experienced a storm? If I never threw him over the side of my boat and realized that it works? That he holds me tight? No matter how long the storm is, he's unshakable, he's unmovable. Now hear me clearly, this is not punishment. Storms in your life are not punishment because you don't get it. He's not punishing you because it's taking you a while to figure it out. It's all love because he wants you to find that anchor wherever you hit it in the boat. Find it and try throwing it over and realizing how good it is. And why? Because he's preparing you for a bigger storm, the storm we call death. He's preparing you. Well, we need these small storms to go find our anchor and learn that it works. Reason number two. Reason number two. I'm going to read you a quote. R.H. Tawney, writing about capitalism, says this. Like an engineer who, to direct the oncoming tide, dams all channels except one through which it it is to pour. Like a painter who makes light possible by plunging all that is not light in gloom, the Christian attunes his heart to the voice from heaven by an immense effort of concentration and abnegation. To win all, he announces, or he renounces all. To win all, he renounces all. When earthly props have been cast down, the soul 
stands in the presence of God. I can send that to you. Send me an email if you want me to send this quote to you. Here's what he's saying. Sometimes we need storms because only in the storms, only in high wind situation, can the false props, the earthly props, the man-made props that we put up in our life be cast down and there's only one thing left standing and that's the anchor, Jesus the Lord. Sometimes we need high winds to prove what's real and what's fake. What's real hope and what's false hope. We need to expose it to hurricane winds. This is what I love about, I sent out, if, uh, if you're not on our email list, fill out because you'll get great emails like this from me. I sent out an email this week to, uh, just kind of teasing what we're going to be talking about tonight. It was Forrest Gump and Lieutenant Dan. You remember this? Remember Forrest Gump, Lieutenant Dan? And the scene where they're you know, just starting their shrimp company and they go out on the open sea. I love this scene. Here's why I love it. Lieutenant Dan had some serious emotional, spiritual baggage, some scars, and he needed the storm to make peace with God. He needed it. He could not do it without the storm. And so you see Lieutenant Dan, he's up on the mast. He has no legs. They've been cut off in Vietnam. And uh, he's on the mast, yelling at God, screaming at God. He's so pissed at God. Forrest Gump says this. He says, I was scared, but Lieutenant Dan was angry. That's pretty good. Thanks. He's so pissed, but he needed to be what? Brutally honest with God in order to let those false ideas come down. And what were his false ideas? If you, if you remember the movie, he came from a family of generals who were all heroes, and uh, they all had medals, and Lieutenant Dan needed to be rescued in war. And he was pissed at Forrest for pulling him out of the jungle. He wanted to die with his men. He wanted the fame. He wanted to be like his grandfather and his father. He came from a family of heroes, and he had some serious identity issues. He had some serious issues. How do I be the man I think I'm supposed to be if I don't have legs? He needed the storm to clear the air with God. He needed it. He needed to yell. He needed his unmet expectations to be beaten out of him by the storm. And so I love it because after the storm, I sent two clips. After the storm, what happens is you see this picture of thriving. Every other boat, shrimping boat, had been beaten down by the storm because they've all fled and tried to run it. But Forrest and Lieutenant Dan, they stayed right in the middle of the storm. There's my alarm. Right in the middle of the storm. Okay? They're the only ones that survived because they didn't run. They didn't try to outmaneuver. They just hunkered down. And you know what? They became the Bubba Gump Shrimp Co. The only shrimping company left standing. They made millions of dollars. And in the second clip I sent out, it says, Forrest says, he never said it out loud, but I think Lieutenant Dan made peace with God. Made peace with God through the storm. Now look with me real quick. Here's the deal. Here's the nuts and bolts, the brass tacks. Look at verse 19. This will really help us to understand what's going on here. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for what? Anchor for our job, anchor for our relationships, anchor for all of our hopes and our dreams. No. We have an anchor for what? Our soul. 
If we don't get this through our head, we will always perpetually be angry at God. Lieutenant Dan had it beat out of him. God is not an anchor for every hope and dream. He's an anchor for our soul. So we'll get angry at God when our physical body breaks down, when our career breaks down, when our 401k breaks down, when our romance breaks down. We'll get mad at God. But you know what? He never promised to be an anchor for those things. He promised to be an anchor for our soul. The gospel of Jesus is this. The Son of God endured the greatest of storms. The gospel promises that no matter what the magnitude or the grade of the hurricane, no storm, no storm can destroy your soul if it's rooted, if it's anchored in Jesus Christ. That's such good news. That is such good news. And it's not just good news for an American with all sorts of money and upward mobility. It's also good news for the poorest of the poor. In desolation, and despair, it's good news for everyone that nothing, if you're rooted, if you're anchored in Jesus, can destroy your soul. I know that there's lots of us in this room who are going through a storm, who are rustling, who are bitter and angry and wondering, when is it going to end? When is this storm going to be over? When can I stop worrying about this? When is it going to be gone? And our tendency, always our tendency, is to look at the storm, to see the storm, to talk about the storm. When we get together with our friends, all we talk about is the storm. Can you believe the storm I'm going through? I'm still going through it, year in and year out. We talk, we think, it, it, it just it, it consumes every part of us. We focus entirely on the storm. I know I do this. I do this all the time. I think of all the reasons why life feels like a storm. Why it feels like I'm barely surviving. We're going to sing a song in just a second. And there's a great line that says, Barely surviving has become my purpose. Do you feel like that sometimes? That barely surviving has become your purpose. Not thriving. Not winning. Not expanding the kingdom of God, but barely surviving has become my purpose. I feel like this all the time. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like all you can talk about is the storms? Here's the deal. That's never going to end unless you make a conscious, God-powered decision to turn your attention elsewhere. It will overcome you unless you turn your attention somewhere else But here's the problem. You can only turn your attention to something that is greater than the present storm. So the bigger the storm gets, the greater the thing needs to be if it's going to captivate your attention. I'm not talking about some distraction that makes you forget. That always has an end date. I'm talking about something that is actually greater than the storm. And there's only one thing. The bigger the storm gets... There's only one thing that can captivate your attention that's greater than the storm, and that's the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is the anchor. So think about the ship. We're on the ship, and the storms are batting against the side of the ship again and again, and they're bigger and they're bigger, and all we're doing is we're talking with our crew. Did you see that wave? There's no way we'll get through it. This storm is not ending. There's no end in sight. And what if, instead of just 
riling each other up about how terrible the storm is, we walked to the edge of the boat because we've thrown the anchor over and we just started marveling at the anchor. Can you believe it? This anchor is holding up. Did you see that wave? The anchor didn't even move. This is the most incredible anchor I've ever seen. Did you see this? Come here, check out this anchor. This is unbelievable. It's not even budging. There must be no storm bigger than this, and yet this anchor is holding up. You know how that changes your experience of the storm? You almost forget about the storm because you're just so enveloped in this anchor. It's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. You marvel in it. You celebrate it. You sing songs of it. You're probably writing songs. You're like, let me see that anchor. No, Jordan, work on that. The anchor becomes our attention, not the storm. We revel in the anchor. We celebrate the anchor. We heap glory on the anchor. In our conversations, we talk about the steadfastness of the anchor as much or more as we talk about the persistence of the waves. In our consider life, we think about the love of the anchor as much or more than we do about the cruelty of the storm. In our prayer life, we thank the faithfulness of the anchor as much or more as we ask for deliverance. In our emotional life, try replacing your constant worry about the overwhelming waves with a song about the beauty of the anchor. These are all ways to help us shift our eyes, the eyes of our soul, from the storm to Jesus. Remember, you've probably seen a movie scene like this. In the middle of the chaos of the scene, the protagonist will come up to the person that's in the gravest of danger, and what they say, look me in the eye. Look me in the eye. Don't let your eyes go elsewhere. This happened to me when Allie was giving birth to Grayson. They brought in the doctors. Can I talk about this? They brought in a vacuum. They didn't explain it very well. They brought in all these people from the ICU, and it's like, what's going on? And then they, vac- they put this vacuum on his head, and then they begin to pull on my son. And Allie is, she should be, in a lot of pain and hysterical. And you know what I told her? I didn't say, look at, it, look at the pain. Look at the down there. I said, look at me. I said, look me in the eye. Sorry. I said, look me in the eye. Why do we do that? It's the same thing because the only comfort in chaos, the only comfort in chaos is found in something more real and more true than the storm itself, than the pain itself. It's found in the eyes of someone who loves you dearly. That's the eyes of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that He loves us more, more more than we can even fathom. He's proved it on the cross. He's died in our place so that our soul might find rest once again. He's done that because He doesn't want the storm to be the end of our story. He doesn't want the storm to be the end of our story. He wants another chapter. He wants another chapter. The only lasting hope is in Jesus Some of us may need to search our ship and find the anchor again. Maybe we've buried it so far down in the rubble and the hull of the ship. We have no idea where it is. We've got to first go find it. You know what we need to do after that? 
We need to drag it up to the main floor of the ship. We need to bring it into the light, into the main part of our life. And then you know what we need to do? We need to throw it overboard. But here's the problem. Lots of times we cannot lift the anchor on our own because the anchor is heavy. And so sometimes we need to ask for help. That's what this community is for. If you need help lifting your anchor to throw it overboard, ask for help because it's the only thing that will keep you safe in the storm. The only thing, the only way to get on the other side of the worst storms. Some of us are going through some really hard stuff, some real storms. I don't want to be flipping about it. We need help. We need some serious help. Abraham waited for 25 years. 25 years after he'd already left his family and he'd already gone to an unknown land into a place where there was lots of danger. His life was at risk. He did this all for God and he still had to wait 25 years for this promise to be fulfilled. Patience is hard. I know that it's hard. I'm going to close with this. Matthew chapter 8. There's a famous story. You may have heard it or not. I'm just going to read it for us. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus, where was Jesus? He was asleep. And the disciples went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then Jesus rose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? When you find yourself in crisis, go find Jesus. Go find him. I don't know where he is for you. Go find him. He knows you're afraid. Cast your fears upon him. He's no ordinary man. He's no ordinary anchor. He's the Son of God. He was given to the world by the Father. It's always been the plan so that he might save all those who trust in him. He will bring you through any storm that comes your way, he promises you this, because even the winds and the sea obey him. Let's pray.